0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, Copyright 1989 by Gary North. Chapter 3 Honoring God's Law by Disobeying Evil Humanist Laws And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived, and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags of the river brink and his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him and the daughter of pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river and her maidens walked along by the riverside and when she saw the ark among the flags she sent her maid to fetch it and when she had opened it she saw the child and behold the babe wept and she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Exodus one twenty two two through six. Here is a story about disobedience. The parents of Moses deliberately hid him from the authorities. Then they put him in the river, but not in the way that Pharaoh had wanted. They placed him in a tiny ark. Then Pharaoh's daughter found it, and she knew what kind of baby this was, the forbidden kind, the kind they were supposed to be tossed into the river. Did she obey her father's law? No, she took the baby and raised it as her own. Eighty years after she disobeyed her father, Moses led the people of God out of Israel, out of Egypt, having destroyed the bulk of the Egyptian society by calling down God's judgment on it. Exodus begins with disobedience. An evil pharaoh broke the earlier pharaoh's covenant with Joseph and his family. He made slaves out of them. Then he tried to get the Hebrew midwives to kill the male children, a violation of God's law against murder, Genesis 9.5. Then he ordered the male infants to be drowned. At least some of the Hebrews refused to obey. Then Pharaoh's daughter disobeyed her father. The Law of the Two Covenants God's law has stipulations. So did Pharaoh's. The biblical covenant stipulations are based on permanent moral principles. These in turn reflect the permanent moral character of God. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3 6. This verse tells us that the preservation of the covenant and the covenant people of God is based on God's unchanging character. Specific judicial applications can be changed when a change in covenantal administration occurs, such as the abolition of animal sacrifices after Jesus Christ's once for all sacrifice. Hebrews 9. God has the prerogative to change the external stipulations and external sanctions when the covenant is renewed. Nevertheless, God tells us that he does not change. The changes in civil law are made for the sake of the vassals under the king's protection, not for the sake of the king's changing circumstances. As the vassals become more mature, the application of God's laws become increasingly rigorous, such as the case of the New Testament's tightening of the laws of monogamy and divorce. Matthew 5:31 31-32 Those who argue that the New Covenant loosens the bonds of the Old Covenant law have trouble with these New Covenant standards. Civil law moves forward through time, just as all other forms of knowledge move forward. The ancient kingdom of Persia attempted to create absolutely changeless laws. When the king spoke, he could not take, it, take back his words. This is why Darius had to throw Daniel into the lion's den, even though he had changed his mind about the original law, Daniel 6. But these ancient kingdoms also fell. Their laws fell with them. Kings spoke supposedly unchanging words, but their words faded with their empires. Legal Positivism and Evolution In modern times, however, all this has changed. The hallmark of all law, ever since Darwin's concept of evolution through natural selection captured the minds of most intellectuals a century ago, is relativism. The law changes when the sovereign people change their minds, meaning when their true spokesmen, the lawmakers, and especially the judicial interpreters of the law, change their minds. Legal positivism teaches that law is what the state says it is. The man who pioneered the evolutionary concept of constitutional law in the United States was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr who wrote The Common Law in 1881. <clears throat> he once offered this definition of civil law: "The prophecies of what the courts will do will do in fact and nothing more pretentious." Civil law is reduced by Darwinianism to little more than mere speculation about paper-thin decisions of the Supreme Court. Holmes served on the U.S. Supreme Court for over three decades. His fellow Supreme Court Justice, Benjamin Cardazzo, praised him as the philosopher and seer, the greatest of our age in the domain of jurisprudence, and one of the greatest of all ages. His life was immortalized. Humanists believe in the famous biography that public school 11th graders used to read back when the level of public school literacy was higher, The Yankee from Olympus. Undergirding the biblical concept of law is the do- doctrine of all-knowing, uh, perfectly ju- of a perfect, all-knowing, perfectly just God who will bring all things to light on the fi- day of final judgment. Biblical law is grounded in the objective fact of the Creator God who speaks the law, enforces His law in history, and will serve as final judge. Darwinian law in the United States is grounded in nothing more substantial than temporary five-to-four decisions of the Supreme Court of the U.S. Supreme Court. Former Chief Justice Warren Berger was interviewed by Bill Moyers just after the former had announced his resignation from the court. The exchange was quite revealing. Chief Justice Berger, constitutional cases, constitutional jurisprudence, is open to the court to change its position in view of of changing conditions, and it has done so. Moyers, and what does it take for the court to reverse itself? chief justice burger five votes the u.s supreme court has reversed itself over 150 times in its history this is an extremely important fact for those who are considering the legitimacy of nonviolent public protests against some law the so-called law of the land keeps changing the court responds to public pressures it is subject to new appointments by the president in short The modern concept of law is wholly statist, divorced from any concept of permanent moral truth, or even logical truth. The law is little more than a fluctuating majority of Supreme Court justices. It is well known that law school professors train their students to get existing laws overturned by the courts. It is a prestigious thing to have been the lawyer who persuaded the Supreme Court to reverse itself. But these same professors speak to the general public in terms of the sacrosanct law of the land. For a Darwinist, there is no such thing as sacrosanct. There are only changing environmental conditions and social responses to those changing conditions. Thus, when a protester decides to take a stand for a different interpretation of the civil law, the consistent Darwinist has to say that this may be the dawn of a new era, like the random genetic change that makes a particular member of a species more fit to survive in his changing environment, so is the citizen who protests an existing law. The Darwinist, who remains true to his faith, can have nothing critical to say about the morality of such protests and changes. He rejects the whole idea of a permanent moral code independent from changing external social and environmental conditions. Any protest could be the herald of the new age, the next evolutionary leap of being. If the law of God's covenant reveals that a particular activity is both immoral and illegal by God's civil standards, then Christians must oppose this behavior. If the modern humanistic state refuses to prosecute or even subsidize such behavior, then Christians are authorized by God to protest, politically, judicially, and in the court of public opinion. God's law sanctions every kind of protest, including violent revolution if lower magistrates approve. Such protests are to be governed by the tactical rule that the reaction by the public that is sought by the protesters should should determine the action pursued, as well as by the strategic covenantal rule that no violence by individuals against the state is legitimate without the approval of a lower magistrate. The protesters should strive to be as the children of Issachar, possessing an understanding of their times, and of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were two hundred, and all of their brethren were at their commandment. 1 Chronicles 12.32 Civil magistrates do not like this view of the lawfulness of the public protest against them, but their worldview is grounded in Darwinism. They may not like what Christians do to protest, but they have no moral foundation from which to launch a principled protest of their own. They can only appeal to political power. Darwinism leads whole civilizations to commit moral suicide. That humanistic civil magistrates and bureaucrats have nothing to say in response to organized civil disobedience, except that such activities are in violation of the existing law should surprise no one. This is an irrelevant response. The whole purpose of the protest is to get the existing law changed. The modern humanist world is morally defenseless against its organized enemies. Humanism's justice operates strictly in terms of sentiment and power. This is the moral legacy of Darwinism. The very moral impotence of the modern power state makes it vulnerable to attacks on its integrity by principled opponents. Confrontation. Morality versus power. The success in retrospect of the officially nonviolent protests of Gandhi and Martin Luther King should not lure Christian protesters into a trap. Protests can get out of hand. Gandhi's did, and so did kings on occasion. King's initially nonviolent activities led to a weakening of moral resolve on the part of white Northerners as well as white Southerners. The white South repented about as fast and as much as a society can. The North, in contrast, became guilt-ridden and highly vulnerable to the demands of black hustlers who were hiding under the cover, who were hiding under the cover of righteousness. Thus. The years 1965-68 through 68 brought violence and riots to the black ghettos of the North, but violence barely touched the South after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The lesson must be learned from the experiences of previous nonviolent protest movements is this. Personal salvation is achieved solely by the absolute sovereign grace of God through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Corporate or social salvation healing is by means of ex, uh, is by means of external faithfulness to the terms of God's covenant law. The state is an instrument of justice, not salvation. It imposes negative sanctions against public evil actions. The state should not be expected to achieve anything more than the slow but steady reduction of public evil. To place great confidence in the state is to deify it, to make it into a god, a god by default. In the era of Darwinism, this god will surely fail. The thwarted Messianic hopes and dreams of arsonist blacks and the counterculture of the 1965-70 to 70 period produced explosions of violence in the United States, especially in the prestigious university campuses. The students had believed their humanist professors. They had become worshipers at the Temple of Politics. When all they got in return was a dull bureaucracy and more promises from the campus authorities, they revolted. But the revolts failed. Students then got even more dull bureaucracy and fewer promises. By the fall of 1970, the semester following the U.S. invasion of Cambodia and the National Guard shooting of several students at Kent State University in Ohio, student protests disappeared. The counterculture disappeared from the campuses in one summer. Bureaucracy had done what it always does, outlast the protests. Nevertheless, the campus was never the same again. The old self-confidence of secular humanism was shattered. The can-do liberalism of the Kennedy-Johnson era died. Academic standards began a long, steady decline after 1964, and they did not recover after after 1970. The bureaucrats prevailed, but their triumph was not glorious. They merely retained the power to preside over the disintegration of the older humanism. The students had removed their sense of possessing the moral high ground. The protests of 1965-70 had not stripped the bureaucrats of their power, but they had stripped them of their self-esteem. The Moral High Ground When Christian protesters confront the state in the name of a higher morality, they should not expect to do much more than to reduce the, more obvious, the most obvious of public moral evils. In fact, it is through nonviolent protests, and especially through the oppressive, immoral, and nearly demonic reaction of the police and politicians, that the moral evil of a public policy is exposed to the general public. Only if the public is totally corrupt can this reaction fail to gain supporters. The authorities' overreaction will also attract outraged supporters who then join the protest. The protests then benefit from the snowball effect. The authorities' brutally, brutality backfires. Viewers can see the overreaction by the authorities. This overreaction points beyond the visible confrontation to the overall immorality the authorities cause. This, in turn, points to the focus of the protest. The immoral civil authorities are increasingly seen by the general public as villains. So are the evil people who are being protected by the authorities. The general public, usually indifferent, can be aroused. The primary political objective of the tactics of Christian covenantal confrontation must be to arouse the suspicions and then the ire of the general public. The protest must expose the immorality of the author of the authorities rule, of the authorities' cause. This must be tactical tactical objective number one. This tactic always requires visible victims, as we shall see in chapter 4, which deals with covenant sanctions. The visible victims must be those taking the high moral ground. In fact, the public will almost always decide who has taken the high moral ground in terms of the level of victimization. In the case of abortions, the public cares little about what goes on behind the closed doors of the physician's office. They can be lured into caring about what goes on in front of them during the evening television show broadcasts. Their concerns will be for the victims of police brutality, not the millions of murdered babies. They cannot feel sentiment about fetuses they never see and do not wish to see. They can be made to feel sentiment about the victims of police brutality. The Christian's primary moral goal must always be witness-bearing, the upholding of God's name through his obedience to God's revealed law. Second, his goal must be to save the greatest number of lives in the judi- of the judicially innocent. Third, the goal is to change the minds of the voting public. Fourth, the goal must be to bring the murderers to public justice. In short, God first, baby second, votes third, and civil vengeance fourth. We need not be so concerned about civil magistrates because God will bring perfect vengeance eternally against evildoers in eternity. Life is a positive something. By keeping someone from being unlawfully murdered, a person is performing a positive social act. Just so long as we or our protest leaders do not expect the act of protest to lead directly to far more people being murdered, We must plan our confrontation so that the public political and judicial backlash leads to fewer murders, not a public tolerance for more murders. This is inescapably a question of tactics. We must understand the fundamental tactics of nonviolent civil disobedience. The action is the reaction. Action and reaction. The model for the minority protester is Gideon's army. Gideon had only a small band of men. He had actually taken two steps to make the group smaller, from 22,000 to 10,000 to 300. God insisted on getting all the credit for the victory, Judges 7, verse 2. With 300 men, Gideon faced a huge host of the enemy army, like grasshoppers for multitude, Jew, Judges 7:12. He gave each man a trumpet and a pitcher with a lamp in it. Normally, an attacking army would have only a few trumpeters and lamp carriers. Thus, the defending Midianite army would naturally assume the trumpets and lamps represented a far larger army of Israelites. The band attacked early in the morning at the time of the changing of the guard, the middle watch. This created confusion in the camp of the enemy. The judge, the enemy fled. Judges 7:22. The action was the reaction. The tactic which Gideon adopted had been designed to put a much larger enemy army to flight. It had rested on the known effects of surprise and misrepresentation of the visible evidence in producing confusion. It made the invaders look more powerful than they were initially. The tactic had rested on the assumption that the reaction of the enemy would destroy them. The action of the attackers was intended to produce a specific set of reactions among the enemy, reactions that would destroy the enemy's ability to resist. Then the small band called the other tribes to help mop up the enemy's dispersed and fearful host, Judges 723 24 With the victory visible, the other tribes joined the battle. For 40 years thereafter, the nation had peace, Judges 8:28. Gideon's strategy was total victory, but his initial tactic did not involve a direct full-scale confrontation with a well-organized army. Instead, it involved the adoption of a tactic of surprise and deception. The enemy did not the Israelites to launch an attack with anything except a full army. When the attack came, they did not know how few they were dealing with. But once the initial victory was achieved, the full army of Israelites assembled to drive out the enemy. The tactic of local confrontation fit the overall strategy of national victory, applying the strategic principle. Consider the anti-abortion cause. The protesters should be clear in their minds what the overall strategy of the protest should be. The ending of abortion. But this goal will not be achieved through the initial confrontation. Gideon's tri- trumpet was not expected to destroy the enemy at that moment. It was rather a means of gaining a response that would, be, that would weaken the enemy's potential counterattack. It is not the lives of the local unborn babies that the local anti-abortion protest should focus on. There will be few lives saved initially. There is always another abortion mill down the street or outside of town. Murderous women always have opportunities to abort their offspring. What really counts is the total number of lives saved after the voters change the mi- their minds or the Supreme Court at last reverses itself on the abortion on demand question. Thus, tactics of local civil obe- disobedience must be designed and enforced. That produce the sought after national judicial goal, not the short-term goal of saving lives locally. What the organized protest should be designed to accomplish is the national reduction of the opportunities to commit legalized murder. This reduction may come because other physicians and hospitals become frightened of the bad publicity, and they then decide to stop making abortion so easy for mothers to buy. The reduction may take place because voters at last change their minds. What must be understood well in advance is this, a protest that temporarily hampers a local clinic, but whose tactics turn off the television viewing or newspaper reading audience, has not been an effective protest. Few lives will be saved locally and none nationally. Remember, the first rule of civil disobedience. The action is the reaction. Before anyone performs acts of civil disobedience, he must have a reasonable reasonably clear picture of the reaction he is seeking to produce he must do all he can to think through the likely responses of his various targets police politicians courts fellow christians and voters and then take steps to modify his tactics to meet these objectives the reaction of the pregnant mothers and their accomplices in crime the physicians is predictable and it should not be weighed very heavily when protest leaders are developing an overall strategy of resistance Not many of these people will change their minds. Protesters who think otherwise are bound to become frustrated. Frustration can lead to irrational outbursts of violence. This is counterproductive. The tacticians should assume that there will always be an increase in the level of public violence and uncontrolled outrage on the part of the police and other civil authorities. This is what the apostles discovered when they continued preaching. They were publicly flogged, beaten, and left for dead, but this negative reaction must not be provoked by anything except peaceful behavior on the part of protesters. The protest must be designed to make any negative reaction against the protesters appear unjust, which it is, because the activity which the authorities are defining, defending is itself unjust. The underlying strategy is to get the politicians to decrease the level of police violence by reversing the unjust law. The master of this strategy was Mohandas K. Gandhi, a lawyer trained in English common law. Anyone who wants a brief introduction to this strategy of nonviolent resistance should rent the videotape, or rent the videotape of the movie Gandhi. View it at least twice, once for the story and once for a closer look at his tactics. While the film is a propaganda piece that was financed in part by the Indian government, it does show how Gandhi deliberately created judicial and political crises that the English civil co- authorities could not deal with effectively. For a more critical book, for a more critical look at Gandhi's long ignored life and beliefs, see Richard Crnjeer, *The Gandhi Nobody Knows*. Thomas Nelson, 1983. Escalating fa- fanaticism. The major danger with a strategy of, of corporate nonviolence is the possibility of escalating fanaticism on the side of the group that initiates these nonviolent tactics. Mobs do things that those who make the mob would not do as individuals there is such a thing as collective behavior this is why god holds groups responsible for their actions as well as individuals this is also why christians must know in advance what they're doing and why they're doing it christians must be confident that it is their absolute sovereign god that it is their absolutely sovereign god who will bring justice in history and not their own passions or level of personal commitment The protest leaders must take steps to inform each of the protesters of the covenantal theology of Christian nonviolence. The strategy of Christian nonviolent civil disobedience must honor all five points of the biblical covenant model if the protest is to be kept within God's lawful bounds. To keep a legitimate corporate protest from becoming an undisciplined mob, each individual in the protest group must be committed to five principles of covenantal confrontation. Number 1, confidence in a God who is sovereign. Number 2, acceptance of a responsible hierarchical authority governing the organized protest. 3, commitment to self-government under God's law during the protest. 5, or 4, faith in a biblical concept of sanctions, blessings and cursings. God will bring his judicial sanctions against those who use physical violence against the innocent. And 5, faith in the long-term reliability of the promises of God. Only when these beliefs are a part of each participant's thinking will his instinctive reactions under pressure make him safe to become a member of an organized nonviolent protest. We can expect escalating fanaticism on the part of the, authoritarian, of the authorities when everything they do. Uh, adds to the fire of protests and also makes them appear as unreasonable people, they get out of control. Gandhi understood this. The more out of control they become, the more martyrs appear on the scene, and the more outrageous the civil government appears in the eyes of the public. Thus, one of the key tactics of protesters is to provoke the fanaticism of the authorities by quiet, prayerful, civil behavior. It is the civil government that must be seen by the public as uncivil, Gandhi mobilized people to march peacefully against the authorities, wave after wave of them marched, and were cut down by the clubs of the soldiers of police. This creates a loss of morale in the hearts of righteous police and an escalating fury in the hearts of the unrighteous police. Both reactions benefit the long-term goals of the protesters. The fanaticism of the protest must be the fanaticism of relentless perseverance. The protesters simply refuse to go away. Wave upon wave of them come to confront the clubs of the civil government. The theological doctrine that is the foundation of this strategy is called the perseverance of the saints. It is the fifth point of the biblical covenant model, continuity. What is hard on one's cranium is good for one's soul and also good for the righteous cause. Counting the cost. Nonetheless, before getting involved in such a risky and potentially painful protest movement, the prospective protester should first count the cost. So should the organizers. For which of you in de- intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient funds to finish it? Lest happily, after he has laid the foundation, it is not, he is not able to finish it. All that behold it begin to mock him. This man began to build he was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth down at first, and consulteth whether he, he is able with ten thousand men to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an, uh, an, ambassador, an ambassador, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14:28 through 33 there should be first an assessment of the enemy's counterattack. This is very important. We do not have Gideon's access to a prophet who sees in a dream what the enemy's reactions will be. Judges 7, 13-14. For example, what if the tactics do, do close the office of abortionists? Or what if the government abolishes the physician's legal right to perform abortions, thereby forcing up the price of the service on the illegal market? What if this new practice, what if this new price situation offers a profit opportunity to private industry to sell pills that will abort babies cheaply and easily? The protester must have a plan of attack in reverse in, in reserve. In October of 1988, the French government forced a semi-private firm to offer an abortion pill for sale after private protests from anti-abortions had pressured the firm to withdraw the product from the market. Public protests against visible abortions are not sufficient in a high-technology age. Women will be able to buy such pills in the mail, and a successful protest against physicians could lead to far more abortions if the closing of the centers leads to the marketing of a mass-produced abortion pill. Long-term political mobilization. This means that effective local protests are only the first stage of the Protest movement. There must be a willingness on the part of protesters to continue to organize politically to carry their protest into Congress and the White House. It means that there must be legislation against all chemicals and drugs sold to the public as a means of aborting babies. Uh, now, this will also mean criminal sanctions against manufacturers who sell them and mothers who use them. There must be far more diligence to keep these drugs off the market than efforts to reduce the sale of mind altering drugs like cocaine, for the use of abortion inducing drugs cannot be classified under the heading of victimless crime. Today's initial protests are just that initial. There must be a well-thought-out long-term strategy of political mobilization. There must be a counting of the cost. Of course, one important aspect of the visible protest against visible abortion clinics is the recruiting of dedicated people who will stay in the political trenches until chemical abortion agents are outlawed and the laws have teeth in them. The act, the action is the reaction. The reaction of the pro-abortionists should be means of the next action uh, of the anti-abortionists. This is why the counter-protest argument that the pro-abortionists keep uh, will adapt similar tactics is no argument at all. The political polarization of the nation must escalate if the anti-abortion forces are to receive comprehensive training for the political conquest of the nation. Total political and judicial conquest must be the goal. Surely it was Gideon's goal. The routing of the enemy throughout the land. Halfway measures will not accompany this. Halfway measures since 1973 have not accomplished this. We have now reached another stage in the escalation of the conflict. There can be no compromise with evil. There is no neutral halfway ground between life and death. Not in the abortionist office, not in the privacy of one's home, and not in the Congress or the U.S. Supreme Court. The front cover headline of U.S. News & World Report, October 3, 1988, was correct. Abortion. America's New Civil War. The Civil War will escalate as surely as the war against chattel slavery escalated in 1820. It cannot be stopped. It is irrepressible. The magazine posed a front cover question. Through the painful confusion, is America ready for the words that heal? No more than in 1861 when the South wanted national healing only on the basis of these words. You must permit us to keep our slaves forever without interference. The North countered with these words of healing. The nation cannot continue half-slave and half-free. These were not words of healing, they were words of conflict. The conflict today is equally irrepressible. This time, however, it is the Christians, not the Unitarians, who are in charge of the irrepressible protest movement. The Unitarians are all on the other side today. Secular humanists are the camp of the Midianites. This time, Christians know who their enemies are. They failed to see it in 1820. This time, Christians are initiating the protest. Unlike the events of 1820 after 1820. We Christians who are protesting abortion today have the moral high ground. We should not worry about the reactions of our enemies. We should design our tactics and our strategy to take advantage of those reactions. We should not lose sight of Gideon's tactical principle stolen by Saul Alinsky. The action is the reaction. But to maintain the moral high ground, we must adhere to the high moral principles we profess. We must understand and honor in all our tactics the, moral, the biblical moral basis of the protest. We must also understand and honor the biblical legal basis of the protest, self-government under God's Bible-revealed law, self-government under biblical law, self-government under God's law is the biblical legal basis of the organized protest. So visible self-government must also be the foundation of the group's actual tactics. Thus, open displays of anger, shouting, or historical, historical crying must be prohibited in advance and monitored and controlled by the leaders during the actual protests. The physical presence of a large number of protesters is the primary means of stating the case for justice. The leader or leaders of the particular rally or demonstration must be on hand to speak with the civil authorities and the representatives of the media. The leaders need briefed printed summaries of the law of God and how it applies to the particular unjust act that is being challenged. There should also be printed statements on the legality of the protest. Biblical law should be presented first, but also arguments from constitutional law and precedents in common law. Examples Examples of successful nonviolent protest in history should also be referred to in the literature. The appeal to higher law is basic. The appeal to precedence is also important. Both heaven and history should be evoked by the spokesman as justification of the protest. It is the printed case for justice that will have the greatest impact on representatives from newspapers and magazines. A forthright, self-confident, verbal presentation of the case is effective with all media representatives, but especially television interviewers. Remember, they need a twenty they need twenty second statements. To use on the evening news, not long winded summaries of the history of the world. If the spokesman cannot make the case for justice in three seven second points or less, postpone the event. What must be avoided at all costs is shouting. Shouting is the first stage of a loss of self control. Silent vigils are basic to successful nonviolent protests. The protesters must honor the principle of representation. They must allow the spokesman to speak in their nature, in their name. If any protester begins to shout except shouts of pain in response to police violence, the leader must immediately send a delegated representative into the crowd to warn the protester to be quiet. This makes it clear to the authorities and the press that there is a consistent moral policy governing the protest. Also, it reminds the protester that he or she is under authority. Shouting is the preliminary stage of escalating emotion. What a man says reflects what he believes. How he says it reflects his state of mind, for in many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships which though they be so great and are driven by fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth, even so the tongue is a little is a little member and boasteth great things. behold. How a great matter a little fire kindleth, kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature as it is set on fire of hell. James 3, 2-6 Shouting by protesters is illegitimate in the midst of a nonviolent protest. Violence is verbal as well as physical. Let the police do all the shouting. A silent refusal to cooperate is the proper response to police shouting or shouting from opposing protesters? A far better way to speak out is to sing. Singing drives the authorities nuts. It's also effective on on television news clips. The early Christians sang as they were herded into the Roman Colosseum. It impressed many people and outraged others, but it demonstrated that Christians did things differently than other victims of of injustice. Singing can be done as loud as you want, although quiet singing is impressive. Song sheets should be handed out to protesters in advance of every local protest, but leaders should recognize that people probably cannot sing enthusiastically for hours on end. Singing is appropriate as the police attacks escalate. It is a way to protest uh, physical injustice under the threat of violence, thereby rechanneling the initial emotional response to screaming or fight back uh, to scream or fight back physically, audible crying by participants must also be avoided. The emotional setting of an abortion clinic is conducive to crying by Christians. As soon as any protester begins crying audibly, except because physical pain of, of physical pain inflicted by the police, the leader must send in a representative and ask the crying protester to move away from the group while it is involved in the actual demonstration. There is also the danger of protesters who carry weapons. Some may do this because they are not committed to nonviolent protesters, to nonviolent protests. Others may be agent provocateurs who have been sent into the group in order to force a violent demonstration or to embarrass the group publicly. Before anyone is allowed into the main line of protesters, he or she must be asked by a group representative to pull out all pockets and open the purse for inspection. Male representatives can deal with the men; females with the, with the women. Every protester must be screened in advance. There must be no exceptions. These are organized protests. The organizers must do their work thoroughly. They must make it plain to the public and to the protesters that the group is self policed. But will the public respond favorably? If the nation is so deeply immersed in the sin that the voters do not throw out any politician who allows abortion to continue, how can any Christian legitimately expect the public to answer to change its mind because of a massive organized protest? The answer is. The same way voters changed their mind in 1964 during the sit-ins in the American South. What, what we must understand is that there is still a large Christian electorate. It isn't organized and anything but self-conscious, but it is Christian. It has been buffaloed by the doctrine of judicial supremacy, which is not a doctrine even conceived of by the Constitutional Convention in 1788, and by endless liberal, humanist propaganda about freedom of choice, murder for women. Even if all the voters were hardcore pagans, the law of God still impresses them. Defending it and enforcing it is a form of evangelism. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you, should do all, that you should do so in the land whether you go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that he calls upon him far? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 through 8. The reason why the defense of God's law works as the means of evangelism and persuasion is because all men have the, law, the work of the law written on their hearts. Not the law itself. The text says, but at least the work of the law. For when Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not these not having the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts uh, the means while accusing or else executing one another. Romans two fourteen fifteen. When righteous people conduct their protests righteously, bearing the blows of civil government, see chapter four. The public will eventually respond sympathetically, but the public has to know that the protesters are serious and are willing to pay the price. If they are perceived as grandstanders or mere publicity seekers, the protest will fail in the ultimate objective of getting some evil laws changed. Conclusion C.S. Lewis, in his novel That Hideous Strength, 1946, presents in fictional form the nature of the religious warfare of this century. It is t- subtitled, A Modern fairy tale for Grown-Ups, but it is in fact far more accurate literary prophecy than George Orwell's 1984, Haraldus Huxley's Brave New World. It describes the coming of a huge government finance research foundation, which is fusing experimental science and occultism as a means of taking control of the world. This is also the dream of the Renaissance, as Lewis discussed in Chapter 3 of his brief book, The Abolition of Man, 1974. In the novel, one of the characters described the nature of a long-term escalation of conflict between Christianity and demonic humanism. The character is a college professor of medieval literature, which is what Lewis himself was. Thus, I think this statement represents Lewis's own thinking, shows why the theological and moral issues are getting clear as time passes, and why the conflict between Christians and their opponents will get worse. If you dip into any college or school or parish or family, anything you like, at a given point in its history, you always find that there was a time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts weren't quite so sharp. And and that there's going to be a time after that point when there is even less room for indecision and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is soaring, sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point getting sharper and harder. The ethical issues are getting sharper. The differences between man's law and God's laws are becoming clearer. Thus, there has been an escalation of the confrontation between, between Christians and their opponents. This escalation will continue. Ultimately, the dividing issues are theological and moral. They cannot be avoided forever. What? What more and more Christians will begin to see is that there is a war for this world. It is being conducted by the supernatural heads of two kingdoms, God and Satan. The fundamental question in this war is not power, for God could crush Satan in an instant. The fundamental issue is ethical. Whose word will man believe? Who will man obey? It is the same old issue that Eve faced in the garden. Satan asked, "'Hath God said?' Eve knew, but she refused to obey." In the escalating confrontation between Christianity and humanism today, most Christians know, but like Eve, they simply refuse to obey, and they deeply resent the actions of those Christians who do obey. As Benjamin Franklin summarized the issues two centuries ago, resistance to to tyrants is obedience to God. In summary, 1. Moses' parents and Pharaoh's daughter disobeyed the Pharaoh's law of infanticide. 2. God's law is unchanging in principle because he is unchanging. 3. Changes in the law are made for our sake, not God's. 4. Modern jurisprudence is evolutionary. 5. Modern law is said to change its response to a changing environment. 6. Law has been defined as a prediction regarding what the courts will say. 7. Biblical law is grounded in the word of God and his perfect justice. 8. The U.S. Supreme Court has often reversed its predecessors' decisions. 9. For a Darwinist, no social law is sacrosanct, for nothing is seen as sacrosanct. 10. Darwinism rejects the idea of a permanent moral order. 11. Calvinist Christians must oppose unjust civil laws. 12. Darwinists have no moral or legal principle that would allow them to reject this right of Christians or anyone else to protest. Thirteen, the modern state operates in terms of sentiment and power, not permanent moral principles. Fourteen, nonviolent protests can get out of control. Fifteen, Christians must begin a protest with this presupposition. protest cannot save mankind. Sixteen, the state cannot save mankind either. Seventeen, to trust the state to save is to guarantee frustration. Eighteen. Christians must take the moral high ground. 19. The immoral and violent reactions of civil authorities show the public who is on the moral low ground. 20. The political goal of the protest is to arouse the ire of the public against civil injustice. 21. This tactic requires visible victims. 22. The level of victimization identifies those on the right moral ground. 23. The public cares more about visible victims than about the hidden victims, unborn infants. 24. There are four moral goals of the protest. Upholding God, saving the greatest number of innocent lives, changing the minds of the public, and bringing evildoers to justice. 25. Life is a positive goal. 26. The basic tactical principle of protest is Gideon's. The action is the reaction. 27. Lives saved nationally should be the national strategy strategic goals, not lives saved locally. 28. The strategy is to change the mind of voters and Supreme Court judges. 29. Protesters should assume that the civil authorities will escalate their violence. 30. Christians more, must adopt institutional rules that will reduce the likelihood of violence in bad manners within the ranks of the protesters. 31. The protesting group should be committed to the five covenant rules of protest. 32. We need to... A fanaticism of relentless perseverance. 33. Protesters should first count the cost. And 34. The goal is long-term political victory. 35. The protest tactics must be structured in terms of self-government under biblical law. 36. Biblical justice still appears to the hearts of men. Deuteronomy 4. 37. There will be an escalation of confrontation as time goes on. C.S. Lewis. And 38, resistance to tyrants
1: is obedience to God. Benjamin Franklin. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.